expert. It's a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event, and we're going to post it on the Sugar Science Site YouTube channel shortly after presentation. If you have questions for our guests, feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. And today, we're so lucky and excited to have uh, as our guest, Dr. Megan Penno. Uh, at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Kupano is the National Project Manager for NDIA, which is the Environmental Determinants of Islet Autoimmunity Study. She's also a research fellow at the University of Adelaide, Australia. NDIA is the first study in the world to explore how environmental exposures from pregnancy through early life may contribute to or protect against the development of childhood type 1 diabetes. Megan was also appointed to manage NDIA at the project's inception in 2012 and she's played a central role in establishing and expanding the cohort, which completed recruitment of 1,500 mother-baby pairs in December 2019. On her experience in omics research, Megan was the first author of the published NDIA protocol in 2013, and she's uh, developed the sample and data collection strategies that will underpin all future investigations involving NDIA participants. And she's now leading her own research project within the NDIA study, aimed at identifying changes in the plasma proteins of mothers during pregnancy and in babies during early life that may indicate a child is at risk for developing type 1 diabetes even before the destructive autoimmune process has commenced. This work is funded by JDRF Australia, the Leona M. and Harry B. Helmsley Charitable Trust, and Diabetes South Australia. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Monica, and thank you to the Sugar Science for um, having me on today. It's a real honour to be able to share with, with you um, the research that we're doing all the way down here in Australia. And I think Monica asked me um, before we get started on the science to just share a little bit um, about myself and my, yes. my journey. I love that. Um, Progression. <laughs> Fantastic. So, <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, you know, I grew up in, uh, in country Victoria and uh, went to university at the University of Melbourne and did my PhD at the Australian Animal Health Laboratory, part of the CSIRO network in Geelong between um, 20, uh, 2002 to 2006. And my interest um, there was actually looking uh, at sheep. I was doing a, a biomarker discovery project looking at, uh, at, at sheep proteins, trying to identify markers of toxin exposure. So on completion of my PhD, I, I moved to Adelaide and I stayed uh, in the field of proteomics, transitioning to more human-based studies and in particular, a biomarker discovery project for gastric cancer. Uh, the proteomics lab that I worked in at the University of Adelaide also did a lot of fee-for-service type research because proteomic platform technologies are pretty expensive. So it was here that I first encountered samples that were collected as part of clinical research uh, trials. And I think my experience there was not always great. So sometimes we would end up with tubes that would have like 52 written on the lid and somehow I was supposed oh, no. to take this tube and, and make some sort of biological sense out of the contents of that tube. And and that was really difficult because the work we were doing, you know, it was really precise and really expensive, but we didn't always know that the quality of the sample that we were receiving was going to deliver um, the results that the researchers were after. So with that sort of practical experience, uh, in, in 2012, I came across an opportunity to get involved in um, human research 
um, as a project manager of a national type 1 diabetes study. And I thought with my, I guess, skills and background and experience uh, in the lab, I could have something to offer in terms of, you know, designing this study and putting it together and you know, making sure the labels didn't fall off the tubes when they came to the, to the downstream researchers. And so I was fortunate enough to, um, to get that position in project management. And that's where I've been since 2012. So whilst I've been out of the laboratory for, for quite a number of years, I'm actually coming full circle now. And as you mentioned, Monica, uh, are now leading a sort of proteomics biomarker discovery project using the samples that we've been collecting for the past eight years. So, so these, are, these are sort of my photos. I promise my hair has changed a little bit more. <laughs> so let me move on to, I guess, the the real hero of the show, which is type 1 diabetes research. And just to, I, I guess, set the scene um, in an Australian context, as of June, the end of June this year, there are approximately 127,000 people in Australia who are living with type 1 diabetes. And each day there are four children and three adults who are given a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes in Australia, which is seven people too many. Like in, in many parts of the world, the incidence of type 1 diabetes in Australia um, is increasing, having doubled uh, over the past sort of four decades. So in the 1980s, um, per 100,000 children aged 0 to 14 years, 11 children were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Fast forward to the most recent data in 2018, and we have 24 children per 100,000 who are diagnosed each year with type 1 diabetes. So in parallel to this increasing incidence of type 1 diabetes that we've sort of seen over the past 30 to 40 years, um, paediatricians have also seen a rise in other disorders that affect children, including um, overweight and obesity, allergic diseases, autism spectrum disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorders inflammatory bowel disease, um, celiac disease, which interestingly has a, a genetic link to type 1 diabetes, as well as type 2 diabetes. So just coming back to type 1 diabetes, the, the relative frequency of what we consider to be high-risk genotypes amongst newly diagnosed children has been steadily decreasing since the 1950s. So this suggests that factors external to the genome, so the environment and perhaps more specifically the modern environment, are driving this increased incidence of type 1 diabetes that we're seeing worldwide. So there is fairly substantial evidence to, to indicate that the modern environmental exposures that are driving the development of type 1 diabetes are being encountered very early in childhood um, and perhaps even during pregnancy and potentially even preconception. And many of these um, exposures are sort of summarised in this graphic here. Indeed, the earliest evidence that we currently have that a person has commenced on a trajectory towards type 1 diabetes is via the presence of islet order antibodies in the bloodstream, which we frequently see uh, within the first years of life. So here we've got two graphs. The top one um, represents um, the age at which children participating in the TEDDY study um, have developed islet autoimmunity. So among these almost 550 children that were participating in this study, the, the incidence um, of islet autoimmunity peaked at nine months of age. 
data obtained from our own India population, although currently much smaller than the Teddy population, is showing the same thing with most of the India children developing the islet order antibodies within the first year of life. So whilst there are lots of fingers that are being pointed at, at sort of prenatal exposures being relevant in the natural history of type 1 diabetes, before 2013, there were no type 1 diabetes risk cohorts with prospective data collection that was commencing in pregnancy anywhere in the world. So Megan, would you just say that this, you, uh, with India and uh, sort of Teddy there, you guys yeah. are establishing a window of, um, you know, I guess, etiology of type one, because we know it's very heterogeneous, right? There can be different time points of um, diagnosis. But so you're establishing, it seems to me like you're establishing a nine month, the window for a nine month um, diagnosis. Is that is that right? Yeah, so I think um, it kind of comes back to this concept of like this developmental origins of health and disease or DOHAD hypothesis. So this hypothesis um, is based on the fact that exposures um, during the pregnancy and very early in life and, and even perhaps pre-pregnancy kind of um, set up, uh, you know, the, the biology that affects you for the rest of your life and also potentially um, what you're passing on to future generations. So whilst um, you're right, I mean, type 1 diabetes is, is very heterogeneous in, in terms of its age of onset, and I did mention that, you know, in Australia, four children, but, you know, three adults every day are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. But I think what we see from the, the islet autoantibody work is that a majority of people who are, who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you know, in childhood, even up to the age of sort of 18 years of age, have got these antibodies um, when they're very young. Yeah. So the, the, the sort of precipitating event, um, it may take, you know, 10 years or 20 years to manifest, but it's potentially an event that occurred very early in life. So we're interested in this period, I guess, looking at, at early onset type 1 diabetes in very young children, but it may be relevant to, to the life course and, and extend, type 1 diabetes. Yeah, life. the prodrome can extend. But yeah, Correct. I just wanted to yeah. kind of just frame that. Okay, great. So let's dive into the India study. Yeah. So yeah, I mean to to address the kind of this this Dohat hypothesis around the the origins of type one diabetes, um, a group of pediatric endocrinologists right across Australia um, established our India study, and the central aim of this study was to identify the environmental exposures and those gene environmental interactions from the pregnancy um, that triggers islet autoimmunity, which eventually leads to type one diabetes. So. So this study was set up across nine clinical sites in five Australian states and also incorporates a collaborative network that includes um, eight of Australia's uh, major universities, um, including uh, the University of Adelaide, which is responsible for the administration of the India study, um, as well as six medical research institutes. So you can see on this map of Australia, there are lots of little blue dots and those blue dots represent um, the locations of where our India participants live. So there's blue dots that are quite a long way away from some of our clinical sites. And that's because we have a, a regional program as part of the India study that enables eligible families who live anywhere in Australia uh, to participate in this research. 
So the eligibility criteria for Andia were an unborn child recruited during the pregnancy or a child less than six months of age who have an immediate family member. So in other words, a mother, a father or a sibling who had already been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, and the reason why um, we were recruiting children who have a first degree relative um, was because these children are at increased risk of developing type 1 diabetes. Their risk is around 16 times higher than if we were to recruit children from the general population. So as I mentioned, recruitment um, commenced in 2013 and I'm very pleased to say it was completed in 2019 and our very last baby was born um, clearly by this photo, as you can see, in the middle of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic um, in July uh, 2020. So I guess a rather sort of scientifically um, dry but, but sound way of looking at recruitment can be summarised here in this strobe diagram, um, which shows that of all of the people um, who were approached to participate in, in India, um, 1,511 or about 55% uh, consented to participate. So 12 of those who consented uh, didn't actually commence and then a further four um, were found to be ineligible um, subsequent to starting resulting in an eligible um, commenced population of, of 1945, uh, sorry, of, of 1495. Um, so very sadly, um, when dealing with a pregnancy cohort, we did have uh, 22 adverse pregnancy and neonatal outcomes within our families. And we would really wish to acknowledge um, those lives and really thank those families um, for their willingness to be involved in our research. So when we take it all together, the NDA study um, now consists of a population of 1,473 infants who were born to 1,453 pregnancies that were carried by um, 1,213 unique mothers. So this is the dry way of looking at it. The, the way we prefer to look at it is like this. Mm. Um, and we are so lucky because our Andia families um, continue to send us really beautiful photographs and share their lives with us, um, which we're able to put on, on social media and include our, our, in our presentations. So as you can see here, we did have um, more babies than pregnancies. Um, and that's because our cohort included 18 sets of twins and one set of triplets. And there were more pregnancies than there were families because 220 of our families participated with more than one child who was recruited um, during or who was born, sorry, during the recruitment period. In terms of what the India cohort looks like, the age gap between our, our youngest and our oldest India child, so this is our oldest boy and this is our youngest girl, um, is 7.6 years. Presently, the median age of our cohort is 3.9 years. So of our 1473 India babies, a combined 62% um, have a mother with type 1 diabetes, 28% have a father with type 1 diabetes, 12% um, have a sibling, and there are 3% of children that have multiple family members, multiple first-degree um, family members who are living with type 1. So this cartoon here um, depicts what the follow-up in the India study looks like. Um, so visits are occurring three monthly from the pregnancy until two years of age and six monthly thereafter. So the follow-up in India can be sort of broadly divided into four different categories. So we're interested in health events, and this includes things like growth and illnesses, medication usage and, and mental health. 
Um, secondly, we're interested in lifestyle and physical environmental factors. So this is things like family structure, physical activity and pet ownership, um, that type of thing. Thirdly, we're interested in, in nutrition in both the mother and in the baby. And lastly, um, biospecimen collection is a big part of NDU, and this is what I'm particularly interested in. So here we have another diagram that depicts all of the different types of biospecimens that we collect and the timing of those collections. Um, and it's important to note that we take samples not just from the mothers and the babies, but also from the fathers and the other family members too. So basically our motto in the NDU study is if it leaks out of a person, we scoop it into a tube and put it in the freezer. <laughs> so from across the pregnancy um, until 10 years of age is the point that we're following these children, uh, NDU collects around two uh, 200 unique biospecimens from each family. Um, so with our, our 1473 families, this equates to almost 300,000 samples from our whole, whole cohort. And if you think about the fact that those 300,000 samples are split on average into five different um, aliquots when we store them, um, we anticipate that the NDA study will have around um, 1.5 million individual tubes stored in, in freezers around the place across Australia. So we wow. need a lot of freezers. Yeah, a lot of freezers, and then they all need analysis. Oh, exactly. That's gonna, that'll be the bigger hill to climb, don't you think? Oh, exactly. And then there's the data, but we'll get to that later. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, so as I mentioned, um, all the children in India um, do have an increased risk of developing type 1 diabetes because they have this first degree relative with type 1, and that the first signs that a child is progressing towards the development of type 1 diabetes is via the detection of these islet autoantibodies. So islet autoantibody, um, islet autoimmunity is the primary outcome of the NDS study. Um, and as this table up here shows that children who have two or more of these islet autoantibodies have a quite a high risk of progressing to type 1 diabetes by 15 years of age. So based on our um, 1473 children that we have enrolled, um, we project that somewhere between 6 and 8% or approximately 100 children will develop islet autoimmunity by the end of 2024. So at the moment, we're sitting um, here at 62 and we appear to be tracking um, fairly uh, closely towards our projected figures, um, although COVID has caused a few problems with um, challenges in obtaining those blood tests. Um, but yes, as I mentioned, 62 um, children so far have developed persistent islet autoimmunity and 15 of those have already progressed to type 1 diabetes. At the end of, of 2019, there were 54 children who developed persistent islet autoimmunity, which represented the approximate halfway mark um, of the NDS study. So at this point, um, the team decided to commence sort of these first um, exploratory investigations, looking at associations between um, various exposures and in particular omics measures uh, in the pregnancy and early life and the development of islet autoimmunity is the outcome. And so this um, study design, um, a nested case control study, was established by the team of biostatisticians uh, at the University of Adelaide. So the cases um, in our nested case control study, and again, you'll, you'll see an, another strobe diagram here for the NCC with 1473 participants at the top. So the cases um, are the first 54 children who developed islet autoimmunity 
up until the end of, of 2019. And these 54 children have been matched based on their date of birth and sex to 161 other children also participating in India who were antibody negative at the time that that case was first found to have the Isla Auto antibodies. So 53 of the cases were matched to three controls each, and there was one child that had only two eligible age and match, uh, age and sex match controls. So this gave us that population of 161 controls. Now, because um, in this uh, nested case control design, um, control sampling occurred with replacement, that means that individuals could be matched um, multiple times um, to multiple different controls. So our final um, NCC design comprised 190 unique um, mother-infant dyads. And our plan is to undertake various omic studies um, using these one, same 190 dyads um, across different omics platforms. So this diagram here, um, I guess, represents the suite of the different types of omics investigations that we're planning to undertake um, using our, our NCC, our NCC design. And I'm pleased to say that most of these investigations, in fact, are funded. Um, so... Up here, the, the work on the, the bacterial microbiome and fungal microbiome from various body sites um, will be performed by our um, collaborators at, at WeHi in Melbourne. The virome studies of the gut and respiratory um, virome, as well as viral serology, will be undertaken um, at the University of New South Wales in Sydney uh, in collaboration with Columbia University in New York. Um, the proteomics work, looking at the plasma proteome, um, will be driven by the University of Adelaide, by myself, um, in collaboration with WeHi in Melbourne. Um, while we actually have another group who are looking at the uh, gut metaproteome, which is largely um, the proteins that are produced by the bacteria living in the gut, and that will be undertaken by collaborators at the University of Queensland. Uh, lipidomic studies uh, on the plasma will also be done in collaboration with the Baker Institute in Melbourne. And we have some international collaborators who are interested in looking at the plasma glycone, so the glycoprotein component um, of those plasma proteins. The basic genotyping efforts um, for HLA imputation uh, are currently underway at the Harry Perkins Institute in Perth, um, but we do have plans to expand this work to include a high throughput um, genotyping arrays. Um, and in addition to this, we're also looking at, at epigenetics and gene expression in specific subsets of immune cells um, happening at the University of Adelaide and at Weihai. And of course, oh, underpinning is... all of these um, omics investigations, we also have the near 7,000 fields of clinical data um, that are collected from each of our participants, which span things like nutrition and growth and most lifestyle factors. Sorry, I just was going to jump in there and say this is a tremendous team sport. It's really yeah. admirable. <laughs> Um, I wondered, you know, for the bacterial, we're, we're kind of uh, really interested in this sort of bacterial microbiome here and the stool metaproteome. Those two, like, how, what's the timeline for discovery for, of those two? Um, do you just sort of a guesstimate? Um, as in, like, when are we commencing this type of work? Yeah, or? when is it commencing and, and what yeah. kind of a, a timeline is, uh, is out there for sort of, you know, 
discovery, I guess. Until we see these, these results. Yeah. yeah. So um, actually, the, the, um, as I mentioned, we're, we're really fortunate that most of these uh, studies that are shown on the slide are indeed funded. Um, and the bacterial microbiome work is well underway. So mm -hmm. the um, whole metagenomic theory, whole metagenomic sequencing um, that's being performed on these samples um, is complete for about half of the participants that are involved in this cohort. Oh, wow, um, the stool metaproteome work, which is being done, uh, led by Emma Hamilton-Williams at the University of Queensland. So she's just um, starting to undertake uh, those investigations now. So in reality, um, it'll probably take us at least the rest of this year um, leading into next year to acquire those data. And then I think as we alluded to earlier, the huge challenge is, is sort of in the analysis of these um, complicated big data sets. So it would be great to think that, you know, we would see um, the outcomes of these, of these studies sort of published um, moving into 2023. Okay, great. Yeah. And who's the head at the uh, WEHR? At WEHR? Yeah. So that's Professor Len Harrison, who's leading that work then. Interesting. Okay. So if anyone's interested in that type of work, those are the Emma Hamilton Williams and Len Harrison are, are leading the charge on those. I, I know Look we have a lot of interest from the audience. Yeah. About those particular targets. Okay, so I mean, we're talking about size here, right? Um, and in addition to the uh, the large um, number of omics platforms that we'll be using to analyze these samples, it's also important to remember um, that these samples are collected longitudinally in India. Um, so each, for each of the omics studies that we showed on the previous slide, we plan to look at all of the samples that have been collected from these mother-infant dyads um, from the pregnancy um, at birth and up until the point of development of islet autoimmunity in this case. So in this figure here, each of these tiny dots, and there's a thousand of them, um, represents a plasma sample that will be included in the plasma proteomics investigations. And the little teeny tiny red dots that you can see here um, represent the time point um, of the onset of islet autoimmunity in the cases. So you can sort of see that the, the youngest person to develop islet autoimmunity um, in our cohort was four months of age and the oldest child that we have um, was five years of age. So this is just sort of the, the plasma dots um, for the other sample types that we've collected. And the sample numbers range from um, 500, just over 500 samples of breast milk um, through to nearly 50, or more than 1,500 throat swabs. So when we you know, look at, at these, multiple samples using multiple different um, omics platform technologies that represents you know several terabytes of, of big data that will be um, generated by this project and of course um, bringing all that together um, will be a fairly substantial task so the results so far i mean this comes back to your question monica um basically we don't have any <laughs> for our okay. NCC cohort yet. Um, but what we really have been working on for the, the past eight years, I suppose, apart from acquiring enormous amounts of data and, and enormous numbers of biological specimens, um, we've been looking at kind of acquiring um, what we're kind of 
calling normative data, um, comparing the, the type 1 versus the non-type 1 pregnancy, um, looking at the gut virome, the bacterial microbiome, and also the fungal microbiome. Um, and we've also done some preliminary studies outside of this um, nested case control design, looking at exocrine pancreas function um, with either autoimmunity as an outcome. So I'll just give you a quick one-slide summary of each of these. Um, so regarding uh, the virome, and this work has been um, led by uh, colleagues at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, so Kiwook Kim, um, Maria Craig and Bill Rawlinson, again, names to look up if you're interested. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and these folks have been using a technique called um, VCAPSEC, which is developed by Columbia University. And VCAPSEC is capable of measuring um, 10,000 different um, virus species that affect vertebrates in a single sample. So it, it really is an omics technology for um, looking at viruses. And so for the first time, um, what they did was compare mothers with and without type 1 diabetes in pregnancy um, across the three trimesters to look at the populations of viruses that were present in these women. And what they found was um, distinguishable characteristics between um, the women with and without um, type 1 diabetes, including a higher prevalence of um, picobianoviruses and tabamoviruses in the women with type 1 diabetes. Um, while the viral load or the abundance of enterovirus B, um, which is particularly interesting for type 1 diabetes research, was higher uh, in the mothers with type 1. Um, they also looked at 24 babies um, who were born to a subset of these mothers. Um, and they were able to find evidence of viral infection uh, in all children except one, which would be no surprise to anyone that's ever seen a child. Um, and in total, they were able to find uh, 26 different genera of viruses. And again, they were able to um, identify distinct patterns that separated infants born to mothers um, with type 1 diabetes versus infants born to mothers without. But interestingly, those viruses in these children were not quite the same as the viruses that were found uh, in the mothers. So at present, we actually don't know um, what the differences mean and whether this has any impact on a child's risk of developing um, type 1 diabetes. But what we do know is that children who are, are born to a mother with type 1 diabetes actually have a lower risk of developing the condition themselves than children who are born to a father with type 1 diabetes. So... Mm -hmm. Um, we don't know whether, you know, some of these differences that exist uh, in, in the virome um, may play a role in protecting child from development of, of type 1 diabetes, and, and this will be further explored in mm. our NCC study. So coming to um, the, the microbiome and the mycobiome, so the analysis of the bacterial microbiome by whole metagenomic sequencing, which incidentally was just published this week um, in, in microbiome, which is pretty exciting. Congratulations. Um, That's great. Yeah, no, no. It, it, that, that, that paper had a gestation that almost felt like an elephant, but um, anyway, we've got there in the end and it's really fantastic to see that work. So, um, yeah, so we looked at looked at the, the bacterial microbiome um, by homogenomic sequencing. We've also um, been looking at the microbiome by ITS1 amplicon sequencing, and there's a manuscript um, associated with that work that is currently under uh, review. And these work taken together have 
um, revealed some important characteristics also of, of the type 1 versus the non-type 1 pregnancy. So what we've shown is that although um, the microbiome does change across pregnancy in all women, um, it does so distinctly in women who have type 1 diabetes and particularly in the third trimester. And that's evidenced by um, this figure here that shows that a particular species, so this is Bacteroides uniformis, um, it increases in abundance with type one in women with type 1 diabetes across pregnancy, um, but decreases uh, across pregnancy in women um, without type 1 diabetes. So, so the combined results of our microbiome and microbiome studies have, have also found that uh, pregnant women with type 1 diabetes uh, exhibit a decrease in bacteria that um, produce um, short-chain fatty acids and B-group vitamins. Um, well, they actually show an increase in LPS-producing bacteria and a higher abundance of the fungus uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, at the same time, we've shown that three different markers of um, gut pathology, that being our fecal calprotectin, and the serum levels of intestinal um, fatty acid binding protein, as well as antibodies that target um, Saccharomyces, uh, are decreased, uh, increased, sorry, uh, in women with type 1 diabetes. So taken together, I think the gut microbiome, the microbiome, and this combination of impaired intestinal barrier function um, may be contributing to the maternal and the fetal complications that are more prevalent in type 1 diabetes. And this is um, a really important finding because, um, you know, if we can implicate the microbiome, the microbiome, it gives us opportunities to potentially intervene, which could improve um, the outcomes for mothers and babies who are born to women with type 1 diabetes. So this is really quite um, important work on itself. Yeah, this is, this is huge, really. I mean, it just shows a a true signature of, um, you know, a snapshot of, of the, the type one di diabetic um, pregnancy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it's a, an area, I mean, pregnancy in general, um, there's not a lot of out there, particularly in the microbiome, which is surprising. We, you know, we're all resulting from a pregnancy, <laughs> but it's a really underappreciated uh, area of research and particularly type one. Um, one of the things that I've been struck with working in the NDU study is this the rate of, of, of complications that women um, who are experiencing a pregnancy living with type one diabetes go through. And, and I think that, you know, if our research can deliver on, on work that will improve the outcomes for these women in their pregnancy, you know, in addition to perhaps what we can do looking at, at you know, the, the etiology of type 1 diabetes, but just improving that type 1 pregnancy is something that we're really passionate about. Yeah, and it has direct, well, it has direct application to the clinic. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, just the sort of last piece of work here that I wanted to share with you is, is some um, work that was led by uh, the University of Adelaide and, and we published this last year in Pediatric Diabetes and it involved the measurement um, of uh, a protein called fecal elastase um, in the stool samples from 28 children. Um, our first 28 children that developed islet autoimmunity. And we compared this with um, 57 matched children who were antibody negative. And this uh, protein fecal 
last days is a surrogate marker for um, exocrine pancreas function. Mm-hmm. And what we found that the um, fecal last days levels did not differ um, between sort of the, the antibody positive and the antibody negative um, children at at baseline. And this suggests that um, children who develop islet autoimmunity actually didn't have a smaller pancreas from birth. So that kind of wasn't the issue here. Um, Regression modelling performed by our statisticians showed that the trajectories or the slopes of these fecal elastase levels in the control groups were increasing as the children aged, but in our case groups were, were decreasing. And importantly, um, in some of our cases, this fall in fecal elastase actually occurred prior to the onset of islet autoimmunity. And although the values of fecal elastase were still considered within the normal reference ranges, um, yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, these levels were falling, but they were considered um, within the normal reference ranges. And we actually sort of did see a a high amount of variability even amongst the same children. So the conclusion that we can draw from this piece of work that, um, you know, whilst we can implicate the exocrine pancreas um, in type 1 diabetes pathogenesis, which does support the concept that type 1 diabetes um, is a disease of the whole pancreas and not just the endocrine component. Yeah. Um, however, it, it, using fecal elastase in itself as a biomarker for sort of predicting um, or stratifying type 1 diabetes risk is, is not particularly useful because of this heterogeneity that we see. So hopefully um, some of our other omics investigations that I talked about will lead to the identification of, of improved biomarkers um, that we can use for risk um, stratification. And this is particularly important for um, potential entry points into, into future um, intervention studies where we may be interested um, in primary but also in secondary prevention. Yeah, no, it's very interesting to see what's happening with the, uh, and there's a lot of sort of fingers pointing at the exocrine pancreas that the alpha yeah. also are involved. And so that that's a great, this is a great way to look at that, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, th- so this is kind of also um, quite preliminary work. It was, it was done based on a, a relatively small number of cases. So we hope to be able to expand this in the future as, as we see um, more islet autoimmunity appearing in the India cohort. Yeah, first steps, but yeah, it has a lot of promise. Yeah. And really with that, I mean, that's sort of um, the the, the conclusion um, of my presentation today. I would really like to acknowledge all of the the fantastic people um, that are involved in India. We, like our little children (laughs) that we've been following, um, we've really grown uh, over the years. So this series of photos just shows uh, our our study team meeting from uh, 2016, 17, 18, 19, um, and of course, uh, this is the, the 2021 photo <laughs> where we're unable to, to meet in person. Um, we're all on Zoom, but, but we do the best we can. Um, there are too many people to name, but I'd particularly like to acknowledge um, the principal investigator of, of India, Professor Jenny Cooper, um, based at the University of Adelaide. 
I'd, of course, also like to thank all of the beautiful families that we have the privilege of following. So this is a bit of a montage um, of, of many of the images and, and really, you know, without um, the dedication of those families, um, you know, we wouldn't have the study that we have today. So sincere thanks to, those, to, to all our families. And of course, I'd like to acknowledge all of the participating institutes of which there are many, um, and particularly our funders, um, JDRF Australia uh, and the Helmsley Charitable Trust. Um, we're also funded by uh, the NHMRC in Australia and, uh, and Diabetes South Australia, me personally. So thank you, Monica, and thank you everyone for your attention. And uh, yeah, um, uh, if, if you know any questions, I'm happy to answer. Um, yeah, I mean, if anyone has a question, just you, if you don't need to, um, you can unmute yourself or you can just put it, <laughs> drop it in the chat. Um, I'd also like to just say, I think that that last slide where you showed, you know, definitely all the participants, but all the scientists that are involved, I think it's a real, such an important message, I think, to those who actually have type one, that they're, that scientists are working so hard on this problem. And I, I think sometimes in the, out there in the you know, the actual struggle, day-to-day -day struggle for parents to try to keep their little ones, especially the little kids, you know, on, on target with their blood glucose and all these other challenges that come with type 1 diabetes. It's important for them to know that um, scientists are, you know, really meeting this head on and with the most powerful tools that are available, as well as, you know, just really going after big amounts of data now to try to get to the bottom of this. Mm -hmm. So I think that was great that you showed that and thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, I mean, we really see, um, and you know, we, we discussed within the team, there's sort of almost a passing of the baton from, you know, we've followed these families, our coordinators across the country have been absolutely brilliant in, you know, in dealing with our families, collecting all of these samples. We've got a freezer full now. And so that responsibility is kind of been passed on to those scientists in the lab to, you know, take this resource and, you know, work their magic <laughs> with it as it was. And, and we take that responsibility really seriously because, you know, every blood, sample is is a vena puncture that a small child had to go through so we we, we look at these samples with respect and um yeah and, and look forward to doing our best with them i also think there's huge opportunity um you know for young scientists who are just coming out of graduate school or in you know as uh, just ending their postdoc to really explore the um interface here with endia and labs that are you know coordinating with endia to you know, jump on board some of these laboratories and and you know roll their sleeves up, get involved in this uh, data analytics sort of mm -hmm. quest. I think it's this is a really exciting project. Yeah, uh, and look, the, the the you know the data analysis is a huge challenge. And uh, yeah, so if anyone's interested, wants to help, <laughs> yeah. let us know. If you've got some supercomputers, let us know. <laughs> Yeah, um, because yeah, it, 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 these are big tasks in 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 the integration of these omics data sets. But um, but you know, we look forward to tackling it. Are you considering interfacing with any um, you know omics uh, analytics in industry, or is it? Are you maintaining this as a completely academic project? Um, 
look at at present this is being um run as an analytic uh, as an academic project um so each of the kind of uh, groups that are involved in the acquisition of these data sets are um considering how you know they can interrogate them um best themselves but yeah i mean that's certainly something that that we would be open to um and for the next you know sort of 12 to 18 months um, the data management is, is something that we're really going to be focusing on. So, yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, I, I'll look into it. Thanks, Monica. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I mean, we we follow Finch Therapeutics out of Boston and Ginkgo Bioworks uh, and companies like that. They're, you know, heavily involved in sort of dissecting and understanding the microbiome. There's also in silico medicine, um, which has a lot of analytics and omics capacity. So we're talking to these um, companies just to sort of uh, connect them to KOLs and to and to opportunities. So yeah, maybe, you know, cool. who knows? Who knows what, what could come of it? So, but thank you again, Megan. This was just fascinating. Um, I thank you for thank your time you. and, and all the work that is getting done in Australia. A lot of really interesting work coming from Australia these days in type 1 diabetes. So thank you all again. Thank you.